More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. On this episode of the Family Business Voice, we spoke to Jonathan Edgley, the founder of Montrose Advisory, about finding out and dealing with addiction in the family enterprise. Jonathan grew up in a family enterprise environment and as a young man was outwardly successful while at the same time struggling with addiction and other mental health issues. Today, Jonathan uses those experiences to help others on their lifelong journey of recovery. Enjoy this episode with Jonathan. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Family Business Voice. Today, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Jonathan Edgley from Montrose. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed for that beautiful introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Given the society we live in, given the times we live in, do you feel like there still is a great stigma attached to mental health discussions? And if so, why do you think that is? I think that there is still stigma associated with mental health, even more so when you talk about addictions or you start drilling down into specific conditions. It's getting better in terms of more people are talking about it. People are feeling more comfortable in having conversations about mental health, not necessarily their own, but they can talk yeah. about it in the workplace, as a business, as a family. You know, people, families building it into their charter to take care of their physical, mental, spiritual well-being. But, but sadly, there is still a great deal of stigma associated with it. What do you see particularly in the context of the family enterprise system that makes talking about mental health, you know, maybe more difficult even than it would be in any case? There are multiple answers to that question. And I think, you know, each family that I work with come with their own unique set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the families that I've worked with in the main are very private, you know, and they they wish to remain so. Some are more um, happy and available in terms of talking about uh, a mental health uh, issue with one of their children, for example. And some aren't, but and the ones that aren't are worried about what we've started this conversation around, stigma, judgment, mm. shame, and more on the commercial elements inside of things, you know, would that drive stock levels down, stock price down? You know, there are some commercial constraints associated with illness, mm -hmm. and these types of conditions and situations are generally dealt with behind closed doors or are not referred to and are not dealt with, hmm. more worryingly. So do you feel like maybe the system in itself exacerbates some mental health issues that maybe under ordinary circumstances could be contained much more easily? I think so. And um, ultimately, what tends to happen is if somebody is suffering with a, with a mental health issue, they may not feel due to reputational damage that they're able to take this public that they're able to deal with it mm. and their family try and deal with it in their own way. But what we have to remember, I mean, is that 
people with mental illness are predisposed to mental illness. Yeah. A lot of it can be sort of hereditary conditions, mm-hmm. genetic DNA passed through generations, and we can usually trace and track it back. What sadly doesn't happen is that the second generation who may be suffering in silence, but people can see that they're not well versus mm. the, the wealth creators, let's say in the first generation, who may suffer with mental illness, haven't been able to discuss it or allow yeah. it to come out and to be seen in the family, okay, because they're concerned about how that may put them into a, a state of fragility or to be seen as weak or unable to, to take this family business to where it needs to be. And sadly, people can be really quite strict uh, and bounded around talking a, about their own emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. <laughs> of manageability and uh, fears. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about how it is that you came to this place and how you like embarked, I guess, on a healing journey as well that allowed you to emerge from this pretty much, you know, someone who is able to talk about it successfully and help others to do the same. I love how you use the word healing in there because from any illness, we go through a process of recovery and healing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's really important to use the right terminology that doesn't carry any shame, that doesn't carry any judgment, you know, as we have a cut on our hand, it heals over time with the right treatment, with the right care and attention and love. My primary purpose in life, Ramya, is to stay sober myself Mm. and stay well and, secondly, help others, Mm. okay? And then by helping others, it keeps me well. It's this beautiful cycle that allows me to, to help other people to heal that helps my heart to continue healing too. Mm-hmm. So through my own experience of mental health and, and addictions, which really started to become problematic for me when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. I knew very early on that I was a little bit different to my friends because of how alcohol affected me mm-hmm. and the fact that I was unable to have any kind of regulation around it. I didn't know when to stop, basically. Mm. Okay. And that was the biggest feature throughout my life, you know, yeah. being going to parties with the best intentions and being the one at two or three o'clock in the morning, stepping over people, you know, to go and get more alcohol or, or, or cocaine um, mm. primarily. But I was able to hide my addiction yes okay because I had a great job I worked for mm. my father in his business and I was driving a lovely car mm-hmm. and I have money beautiful suits and all of these things and people want to see what they want to see right like and people want that to be the truth as well I think exactly. and that's the main thing yeah and I wanted people to see what I wanted them to see that exactly. I was fine there was no yeah. issue I was I was in good shape, good form. You had it under control, yeah. Under control, and I was just a party boy. I liked having a good time, Hmm. okay? But they didn't see that 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock on a a Monday morning 
before getting in my yeah. car and traveling to work. You know, they didn't see the breakdowns, the anxiety, the panic attacks, the unmanageability around my alcohol and, and drug yeah. use to the point that, you know, I, I, I couldn't come out of the house some days. I was, I was so full of fear and anxiety. I had to crawl on my hands and knees to get in my car, right? But I still showed up. And the thing was, I was still doing the numbers and the, the business was going well and all of these things. But inside, I was dying. You know, it was a really sad state of affairs. And I, and I, and I wanted to emphasize that point a lot because often when I, when I work with families and family businesses, is that, you know, um, they'll come to me and say, we're, we're worried about my son, my husband, my wife, my daughter. And I will always ask them, so are they open to help? Mm-hmm. And they say, no, they don't even know they've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I say, well, they probably do, but they don't want you to know about it. So it's very rare that I get a call from the person that needs the help. It's usually from the family. Did you have anyone in your family who came to you and actually noticed and, and said to you, I'm worried about you, and how did that make you feel? Absolutely. The families are so fearful of approaching their loved one who's ill, right, because of what the consequences and the fallout of that might be, that they do nothing. Mm. Okay. And it just goes on and on and on. So it's fear. Mm-hmm. Okay shame, guilt, all of those things. The same happened in in my family too, okay? It was my father who realized from a fairly early age that there was something a bit different about me, okay? Mm. And that I needed help in a different way to that of my brother, okay? It was when I was... 30 years old, my, my, my dad came to me and said, look, son, I love you, but I'm really worried about you. And I want to offer you a chance to go to rehab. And, and I said, yes, absolutely. There was no sort of umming and ahhing about it. There was about one particular element of it, but my life had become such a burden my addiction was such a burden my life was so um, dysfunctional and upside down and I was so sad right I didn't want to open letters I didn't want to get involved yeah. with my tax I didn't want to do any of that I would just push it all to the side yeah. and I would drink to forget escape. Drink to escape yeah so when I got this lifeline I took it with both hands and, I, and off I went to South Africa for four months Doesn't it massively matter here, the fact that it was your father that came to say this to you? Because I could also imagine that that was at the same time the person that you would have wanted to let down the least, because not only is he your father, but also you were working for him. So like the relief that that person who I guess like you would have liked to, you know, not having noticed this the most, actually being the one coming to you and, and relieving you of having to have that conversation. Do you think that that makes a difference who it is that actually, like, you know, picks up the topic? Well, I, it, it does. It does. And, and what happened was when I had that, you know, very honest communication, my, my, you know, my dad spoke to me about this, was the sense of, oh, it was like somebody had taken a weight 
off my shoulders for the first time. Mm. And it was okay. All right. It's okay. They know. He knows. You know, I'd felt so for so long. I suffer with mm. low self-worth, low self-esteem. I was always wanting to please him and look up to him. And I had this, I suppose, um, skewed view of how things were and how life was and, and you know, worked very hard to win his time and attention. So that was the moment when he said that to me that I, I, I realised that, that our relationship was on a very different uh, footing than I originally thought that he was my father but I'd looked up to him in a, in a way that was was very complex and not real but we've mm-hmm. never spoken about it because yeah, this not is real. the emotional dysregulation within families you know where we where, where we don't talk about these things and we just you know there is a level of expectation and I've just got to you know, legacy burdens, we call them, a legacy burden because yeah. I've just got to carry the mantle. I've got to do what he does. I've got to walk and talk like he does. But when we got to that point of him being able to, you know, come to me in a different way, oh, it's like the pressure had just gone out of the tire, you know, just beautiful man. For the people around you, when you see, like people struggling with with similar issues in 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 in, in family systems mm. what do you tell them though about this like this process so if you see someone struggling like what is it that you're supposed to do first like is there is there a scenario for instance where it is not a good idea for you to be the one addressing the issue directly with someone like have have you come across those kinds of things do you have any sort of like recommendation and advice for those kinds of situations well absolutely of course you but you've hit the nail on the head you know people don't want to have these conversations so they don't mm-hmm. so when i'm talking to a family advisor a tax advisor or or a, a private client lawyer i'm educating them and empowering them to be able to have conversations with with families and about the fragility of an individual and how together we can help them navigate change with grace and dignity mm. okay that's really important to to sort of neutralize the situation and create some positivity around it number one what, what i would always say is that we have to be careful and i would always speak to the family first just to understand the situation to be able to come up with uh, an appropriate solution. And it's normally done um, in, a, in a way it's very strategic and business-like, but done with a lot of love and a lot of compassion, mm-hmm. of course. But sometimes families can get things very wrong um, because they're not trained in this area specifically and they've not been through it, they don't understand it. And this is where conflict can flare up when somebody will say you just need to stop doing that Mm. you just need to do this or you need to and you 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 blame shame we were chucking chucking petrol on a fire you know and actually what we need to do mum and dad for example is step away okay and love your son your daughter just as an example and treat them with a huge amount of compassion because they didn't wake up one morning and say, my career of choice is alcohol. 
my career of choice is anxiety. My career mm. of choice is depression. We didn't choose it. It chose us. Mm. Okay. With addiction, it's very different than it is for mental health. With an, with an addiction, there, there does need to be a plan. But what actually happens in the family system is that there are people playing different roles. Okay. Mm. There will be somebody who's enabling the behavior and saying, look, I'll pay off your credit card. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. The car that you've just crashed, don't worry. We'll get it repaired. We won't tell dad. We'll do this. You know, and and we're, what we're doing there is enabling somebody to continue with their their addiction and their illness. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're keeping them locked in a problem rather than moving them towards a solution. So what I always do is, you know, as I said at the beginning, every family has a, a unique set of circumstances, okay, and, and, and a situation. What I do is I go in and I talk to the family to understand that and think about what the best approach is going to be. And often when I go into a family and, and start to have that strategy consultation with them, the person that needs the help is often not ready or unwilling or doesn't even feel that they need any help because we can rationalize and justify our behaviors very easily. We hang around with people who are doing the similar things to us. So we're, we're not looking outwards at other people. And if we are, we're judging them. Okay. So there's a very complex mm-hmm. situation that needs to be managed in a particular way that helps somebody get to a point of three things, acknowledgement, acceptance, action. Mm-hmm. And then we can move into recovery and healing. What was it like for you when you felt better, when you got better and came back? Like, how were your relationships impacted and what happened to those relationships? And how did you sort of like rebuild, I guess, some of the trust and some of the, you know, the way you wanted to be seen by these people afterwards? So what I know is if we take me out of a dysfunctional family dynamic, and it is dysfunctional because I've been in it. I've created dysfunction, okay? So the people who've got an addiction or a mental health issue are creating chaos. You take them out, the mm. family are still in chaos, okay? So this person's mm. over here getting well, and are you going to put them back in that family environment and expect them to thrive? No, okay? So you need to learn a lot whilst mm-hmm. you're there, and it's all about knowledge and empowerment and, and you know, having those 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 moments where things drop from the head to the heart and they feel real and they're okay, they resonate. But the family need to be offered a rigorous process of recovery support as well. They're in recovery too. They need to be go through a process of healing. They will have experienced mm-hmm. trauma. So we the family are so important. And sadly, they often get missed. So the chances of long-term sustainable recovery for somebody who's been in a treatment program to then put them back in that family are low anyway. You try and plug them back square peg round hole where nobody's had any education and they're talking a different language, right? And they're talking about feelings and emotions and that's never been discussed before. Mm. All of a sudden it's like, well, I'm not, that's, that's not what I understand. Mm-hmm. So then there's more shame and guilt. So people relapse. So recovery, and I'll just answer this because I think you built it into your question, but recovery is a lifetime gig. Yeah. 
the maintenance of mental health, the maintenance of addiction is done on a 24-hour basis. And there needs to be a robust infrastructure to support me, my head and my heart, my spiritual growth, my development, my relationships, but the aftercare of anybody coming through and that, that reintegration back into family, society, business, love, children, partners, mm-hmm. travel, eating out, all of those things absolutely needs to be needs to be looked at and supported. I do feel that this is this is maybe also one of the main reasons why it's hard to talk about in the first place, because this idea that once you admit that there's a problem, mm-hmm. can I ever go back to the way things were, right? Like, can I ever, like, you know, can I actually go through a recovery process and come back? And, you know, we say the only thing to fear is fear itself. So what I've got to do is mm-hmm. be able to let families know that I'm here to help. My team are here to help. We're here to guide them through the process every step of the way, right? Mm. They're not alone anymore. So we surrender to win. We surrender to win. We take the power out of the addiction, the power out of the mental health. We take that back. We work with that. And we create solutions for our loved ones that only can have a positive impact on their life and our lives. What would you like people to talk about more? And do you believe, and how do you believe that could help people that you come across in your work and in your life, you know, gain easier access first to the resources they need to get better, but also to have that most difficult first conversation with family members? First and foremost, it's about love and compassion. Hmm. We can't go into a conversation where we're carrying right at the very forefront of it, mm. resentment, anger, frustration, because it's only it's not going to land well with somebody. Yeah. So it's about being able to reframe how something is, however painful and however difficult it is. I would always urge people before they approached somebody to have a conversation with a professional just to say, here's some background, here's what's been going on, How do you feel we should approach this? There are a number of great things that we can we can do and that families can do, but it's always about treating any conversation sensitively, without judgment and not this you are, it's how we, us, you know, there's a family unit here and we all love you and we want you to be well and we're worried. love and compassion on this show with Jonathan Uh, Edgley thank you so much for joining us on the Family Business Voice and for sharing your story and your insights thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice subscribe to our channels now on iTunes TuneIn Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes